Welcome to New Wild Review, the official Bird Ally X podcast. My name is Monty Merrick. By way of introduction, if you need one, I'm one of five co-founders of Bird Ally X and the director of Humboldt Wildlife Care Center, a wildlife care facility operated by Bird Ally X right here on the edge of Humboldt Bay, between Eureka and Arcata and behind the Redwood Curtain. For more information about Bird Ally X, I recommend a visit to our website, found at birdallyx.net, B-I-R-D-A-L-L-Y-X. Net. With this podcast, we will try to bring news and perspectives that affect wildlife rehabilitation, our wild neighbors, and the ongoing crisis of modern civilization's destructive relationship with Mother Earth. We'll talk about wild patients. We'll have discussions with our colleagues in wildlife rehabilitation. We'll have discussions with people working in other disciplines who are helping to rehabilitate the wild in other ways, rescuing populations, preserving wild rivers, helping renew soil, restoring lost prairie grasses. We'll talk about life on Earth, the life we all share. If you have ideas for this podcast or an issue you'd like to hear discussed, please drop us a line at info at birdallyx.net, B-I-R-D-A-L-L-Y-X dot N-E-T. For this first episode, I'll be doing a reading of a talk based on one I gave at a conference on oil spill response nearly 13 years ago. I hope you find the ideas presented still relevant. The talk is on the subject of providing good husbandry for our patients and is titled Natural History, Daily Work, and Frequent Sightings Are the Keys to Good Husbandry. There's probably some element of this talk that when I gave it back in 2007 that was meant to uh, remind people in the oil spill industry that wildlife rehabilitators were a crucial component um, in providing good care for um, wild animals that had been impacted by oil. It's not always obvious to other professionals in that field. So uh, that's probably what I was starting off with, but I, I think it, you know, basically it stopped being axe grindy and just became, a, a, you know, a labor of love pretty soon. Um, at the start of each talk, I often like to begin with a quote. It's in a quote I learned at the Progressive Animal Welfare Society, or PAWS, outside of Seattle, Washington, at, at their uh, wildlife center, the PAWS Wildlife Center, um, that they operate along with other animal services. PAWS.org will get you to their website. I'm very grateful for the early education in this field that I received from there, and they're a very talented and dedicated staff. Uh, I'm just working with them every day of my life, and they're awesome human beings. In any case, the quote is from Henry Beston, and a writer more known for his New York theater reviews, uh, from a book he wrote about life in a shack on the dunes of Cape Cod in the mid-1920s called The Outermost House. I recommend it highly. Huh. As I was preparing this and I was reading over that quote, I noticed that I don't agree with him as heartily as I once thought I did. And um, there's things in the quote that I mean, you can wonder about, like, what does he mean by man? What does he mean by we? And what is it that he is assuming about the rest of human experience culturally and individually? But uh, it is still beautiful uh, writing. And even if you don't feel part of his um, idea of we, and for those who do feel part of that, it'll be good for them to hear it. Um, and funnily enough, it made me feel less uh, isolated in my felt kinship with other animals, even though what I'm about to read um, contradicts that kinship. But, you know, there it is. So, getting on with it, what he wrote was this. We need another and a wiser and perhaps a more mystical concept of animals. 
remote from universal nature and living by complicated artifice, man in civilization surveys the creature through the glass of his knowledge and sees thereby a feather magnified and the whole image in distortion. We patronize them for their incompleteness, for their tragic fate of having taken a form so far below ourselves, and therein we err, and greatly err. For the animal shall not be measured by man. In a world older and more complete than ours, they move finished and complete, gifted with extensions of the senses we have lost or never attained, living by voices we shall never hear. They are not brethren, they are not underlings. They are other nations, caught with ourselves in the net of life and time, fellow beings of the splendor and travail of the earth. Husbandry, as you might find in a brief Google search, may be defined any number of ways. From the perspective of raising livestock and crops, to the care of maintenance and captive animals, to general stewardship of resources, whether those are household finances or the system of national parks. Generally, however, good husbandry means that what is in our care shall thrive. In wildlife rehabilitation, and specifically in a spill situation, husbandry can mean keeping alive 300 baby brown pelicans through the process of getting them clean, or 20,000 African penguins, or 43 mallards and Canada geese. Good husbandry needs no defense. A clean environment, an appropriate diet, and housing that acknowledges the needs of the species being housed with as many of the inherent stressors of both injury and recovery as reduced as possible are critical to the rehabilitation and eventual release of our patients. And while it's not my point, I think it's really hard to overstate the importance of husbandry in this process. Good husbandry is nearly identical to good wildlife rehabilitation. And we must always refine our methods and always be ready to accommodate our latest observations and always look for new ways to increase the quality of the care that we provide during oil spills and other catastrophic events that impact wildlife so adversely. brings its own questions, both of theory and practice. And we learn, of course, from our patients in these matters. We capture and we care for them because we believe that we must, though the theory remains unproved. We capture and we try to keep them alive when the ways of the world had agreed they were dead, as dead as the many more we never get to treat. To keep them alive until they are strong enough to wash, strong enough to decide that they will live after all, and it is always the hardest to lay to rest the victims whose fierce gaze is only strengthened by their ordeals, though their bodies are utterly broken. To rehabilitate an oiled bird is something we decide to do before we know how to do it. We learn on the job. Some of us started learning on the job 20 or even 40 years ago. Some of us are just beginning. One of the joys of caring for injured wildlife is the kinship it has to those things that are very old and very common. Cooking, child rearing, hunting, art, craft. These human engagements, although varied, are similar 
in that all are simple and accessible and require a lifetime to master. Any of us can follow the protocols that have been established through what is now decades of trial and error in the effort to rehabilitate oiled wildlife. We have a body of knowledge to lean on, documented and accessible. But who it is that can really make that body of knowledge come to life is the rehabilitator who brings a set of experiences, especially those coveted moments of inspiration in which sudden and permanent learning occur. Ask any rehabilitator, and they will tell you that these moments happen daily. Each day we are schooled in what a sick or injured seabird needs. Surely, a western grebe and a common loon have similar lives, and therefore quite similar needs. Neither can tolerate a long period of time off their water homes. Keel and hawk and foot lesions will develop quickly, as we all know. But what does it mean when a common loon stops evading the net? Anyone who has treated a few loons knows at least this. It's not anything good. What we learn as rehabilitators is incredibly specific to the species and to the individual. Think of a common loon, say, a big one, in breeding plumage, who nearly takes off your finger in one lunging bite, and you know that this bird needs only a few days and out she'll go. Yet a gull might do the same, flapping his left wing while his right wing is shredded. Consider how all cormorants will bite, but a branch cormorant who seems more aggressive than usual probably has a fish hook somewhere in his guts. Just as a western grebe who cries in his hospital pool all day should be radiographed or palpated for a GI impaction, these are the things you learn when you do this work daily. What any particular bird needs is learned and in a manner that endures from daily care for birds in general. And there is no limit to the intricacies one might learn. Each day, hundreds if not thousands of people around the world are engaged in the work of nursing wildlife back to health. In the day-to-day -day care of the animals routinely injured or sickened by their contact with the machinery of humanity, we learn to care for the large numbers of wildlife affected during an oil spill. And as the oceans deteriorate and more species become threatened with decline and extinction and saving as many individuals as we can becomes the world's work, wildlife rehabilitators will be there with skills and knowledge to help ensure that the victims of the altered environment are given the best possible care. Like many rehabilitators, I came into this work with a desire to help wildlife, which had been wedded by some reading. I was anxious to be of use and hungry for something elemental, unmediated, what we may call reality. I became a volunteer before I became a true student of natural history. I held baby house sparrows and fed them baby bird slurry long before I understood the life of a sparrow who is no orphan, if I ever have. I became one of the relatively small number of people in this world who knows a mallard's tongue the way a child knows a cat's. 
It was another year before I saw truly wild mallards living in open seclusion on a pond high in the Cascades and began to understand how the integrity a sick duck presents in care is but a shadow of their true nature. If I hadn't become a volunteer at a local wildlife rehabilitation center, I may have not seen them at all. Every Stellar's jay I see today is the gift of the first cat-mauled jay whose bandage I changed. Every nest I've searched for depends from the first baby bird basket I clean. And this is true for every species, even those who are with us each day, robins and crows, gulls and pigeons, and interest in animals, which is so common, leads us to wildlife rehabilitation, and that leads us back to the literature of nature, which leads us to nature itself. everywhere. The short history of the common murray that is found in the guidebook would tell us where we might find him or her, and at what time of year, what sort of plumage we might expect either to wear, maybe how their voice might sound were we to try to transcribe the song into words. Another text may explain discovered facts about how alcids breed and where they feed and what any of us have seen, and so on, until at last we are driven from our house to the field, from the book to the sea. And here I say, let's plunge into the sea. What is true about the world, about life, about our lives is manifest in the lives of our patients. We are in an unparalleled position of holding wildness in our hands and restoring its autonomy. We muck around in oil a foot deep, pulling dead loons, mergansers, otters, muskrats from its clutches. We sing wings blasted at the shoulder and ravens shot from the skies by children who are ignorant of their meaning and their worth. What I'm trying to say is that the reasons for getting out to where our patients are at home are manifold. We learn who they truly are. We restore our own sensibilities. We give our affections a chance to grow. We preserve what we love. We protect who we cherish. It is not enough to know that northern fulmars are pelagic birds who breed in the Arctic. Although we may still provide good care for them with little more knowledge than this, but what kind of care might be possible after seeing these birds asleep on the slopes and the crests of 30-foot waves in the Bering Sea? The first magnificent frigate bird I ever saw was in a pet carrier retrieved from the airport. The aptly named bird had been found far off course in British Columbia and sent by jet to the clinic where I had worked in Los Angeles. He was juvenile and very thin. I fed him fish and marveled at how merely spreading his nine-foot span of wings sent him aloft. The next one I saw was on the Gulf of Mexico, floating far above me far above the achingly blue sea. They seemed more like a dream. Now the first one's effortless lift from the perch began to make more sense. I began to understand what the patient longed to do. Now I would be a better husband to that bird. 
We may teach or be taught to scatter a few leaves in the bottom of a spotted toey's cage. A good thing to do. But what happens when we see for the first time, and each time after, one of these creaking birds rattling around beneath the blackberry vine, kicking up dead alder leaves, searching for insects, is immeasurable. A true sympathy begins. Now we can begin to imagine what will make the toey more at ease while recuperating. Now we are more able to reduce stress. A few years ago, I had occasion to be on the Central California coast. I camped overnight at Big Sur. The campground is primitive but accessible, as easy to use as a motel. Though with the sky, the surf, the fog, the trees, the birds, the easy camaraderie of fellow campers, and a wood fire as the finest amenities, and also affordably priced. I paid $7 for the privilege. On my way to the beach, a pair of Swainson thrushes flew in circles through a thicket of young trees, singing their spiraling flute of song and calling their liquid drops in a bucket. The guidebook calls them drab little birds, but I prefer to think of them as subtle. It had been two years since I'd last heard this song, and I'd never before seen them with such clarity, unaided. Always they'd give just a glimpse here, a flash of tail there, but these two put on a show, calling their hearts out and chasing each other through the branches, a regular song and dance number. Just past these trees, the trail splits, one branch to the beach and the other to the headlands. I took the headland trail. Out at its point, the ocean is perhaps 75 feet below. An orphaned piece of land sits about 150 feet out. On this sea stack, facing the setting sun, the onshore wind, were 30 or so adult western gulls. Their plumage was pristine in the slanted light. They look like a million bucks. Rats with wings, some people call them. But out here, they are truly home a broken off chip of continent stained with generations of droppings and they are beautiful and they are perfect, perfectly matched to this place in the sea and the sky. And as I watched them cavort in the wind, pivot on a wingtip like the universe around Polaris, suddenly a gull chick, gray and speckled and until this moment neatly hid by his plumage and the rocks, stretched his young wings and stood facing the wind the air sliding through his feathers, not yet ready to bear him up. But he faced the wind and lifted his wings, and his dream of flight was no pipe dream. He watched his parents swoop and dive, and everything stretched out before this young bird, just now becoming acquainted with the wind. It would be a lifelong romance, and here was the very start. watched for another hour, eventually counting ten chicks, some maybe a week old, others nearly ready to fledge. I wanted to stay to see them off. I wanted to put a small stove and rocking chair there on the edge of this bluff and make coffee and sit and do nothing more than see what happened next out on the rock of the gull. 
I looked about some more on the same rock in the cavities etched into its steep sides were a handful of nesting branch cormorants with a few nestlings. An osprey made several trips to the sea and back. On each return, a fish realizing his old dreams of flight clutched in its talons. Single file, 15 brown pelicans brushed soundlessly past me as they banked toward the surf. Bank swallows and cliff swallows were acrobats flying up and down the face of the bluff. Loosened feathers raced in the wind, and it was and it is a bird's world. The sun got fat and red and then sank. Reluctantly, I took my heavy body, solid, no feathers, ungainly and oafish, back down the trail to my sleeping bag. Two days later, I was back at the clinic where I work. We had a western gull who'd been covered in cooking oil. When I'd last seen him, he had yet to be washed. But now he was clean and standing and looking much better. But still, against the birds I'd just seen teaching and learning to fly, I could see that his fierce and wild nature was dimmed. He stood in the aviary, facing east, eyes half closed, warming himself in the morning sun. He'd begun to bring his feathers back to shape. His body was responding to the medicine. Soon he would begin to fly again, perching higher, nearer to the sky. Soon catching him would be possible, only because he was already captive. This is the gift that all of our patients give to us. They bring us into a world that we forget is ours and teach us to see by its lights. People outside of this field often wonder if our patients ever express anything like gratitude. Of course they do not, I say. And besides, we are the ones who are indebted. You've been listening to New Wild Review, Volume 1, Issue 1, the Bird Ally X podcast. To learn more about wildlife rehabilitation or to support our work, visit www.birdallyx.net.